I started a series last week called Sexually Disoriented. And by the way, thank you uh, for all the text messages and emails and just different, all the different feedback. It's been really cool to hear. Um, I think uh, I kind of, in, I, I, you never really know how hungry people are for uh, topics like this. And, and it was really neat to see uh, how, how you guys were wanting. We, we did a survey many, many months ago. And one of the things that came back here at Clearview was people were asking, how do we share our faith in today's culture? And how do we handle issues? And, and this kind of was one of those things that kind of spawned out of that. Not because of that. I've been having this on my mind for about a year. But we talked about how we got here. And if you missed any of those, you can get it on YouTube. You can get it on Spotify. You can get it on the iOS store. But today we're going to talk specifically about a different issue within that. And I'm going to talk to you about what God wants from Christians living in a confused culture, right? Kind of a long title, what God wants from Christians living in a confused culture. Last week, if you, if you, if you weren't here and I'm not going to rehash all of that, but last week I brought up Martin Luther King and how, how if you look back in the civil rights movement, Martin, Dr. King led the way and the church was slow to respond. In fact, I would even go so far as to say some churches were on the wrong side of that. The church in general was just slow to respond to that about race. And that was a civil rights issue. But I, I told you, and I'm going to keep telling you that it is true that color, a person has no ability to change their skin color. You were born with that. You, that, 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 that is something that, that was, was absolutely necessary because society was very slow to respond. And, and so eventually the church came around. So Martin Luther King and everybody of any color at all, none of us, I don't care what color we are, we have no ability to choose that. But I will tell you always, and I'll keep telling you, that sexual orientation is always a choice. It's always a choice because I can't choose what color I am, but I can always choose who I have sex with, and so can you. That's a choice, and sexual orientation is a choice. It is not a civil rights issue. It may have civil rights implications at times, and, and, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit, but this is different, and the reason that I bring this up is because for whatever reason, as I said before, are there just as big issues on the national landscape? Of course there are. But for whatever reason, society has chosen to make this issue prevalent in American society. When you see the U.S. Treasury and, and the flag, the pride flag flying over the U.S. Treasury, when you see the, the pride flag flying over a U.S. Embassy, if you weren't here last week, I showed you that image, and that's an illegal image because that's sovereign territory. If you don't know that, when the U.S. Embassy is United States dirt, and it is a federal law that no flag can fly higher than the American flag, and that flag is flying above the American flag. And I'm here to tell you, when that's the case, that has become part of the state religion. I was at a U.S. Embassy years ago, many, many years ago on a mission trip. I'll tell you something about U.S. Embassies. Don't believe what you see in Hollywood. You can't just go knock on the door. <laughs> that didn't really work like I thought it would. 
um, we were there in this country, and I thought, oh, there's the U.S. Embassy, and well, that's true, but when I knocked on the door, I was met, well, first of all, I was met with somebody outside with an Uzi, and that didn't, I was like, oh, I'm U.S. citizen, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I just thought I would, I always wanted to see inside of one of these places, you know. Well, let me tell you, man, this guy comes on the speaker and, and he says to me, I'll be down in a minute. And he comes down and he's the head of security. I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I got? I've, it's a, now an international incident with Jason, you know. And he said, they all asked me, what is this about? What is this? I don't know this guy. And, and they said, he said, but when I heard the Southern accent, I thought, well, he can't be all that bad. And his first question to me, his first question to me was, do you, no kid, I'm not making this up. He said, hey, have you gotten any news on how good Alabama is going to be this year? And, and I said, who cares? You know, that's exactly what he said to me. But as we began talking, I, I began, um, that's a true story. And, and as I began talking, we, we became friends. And he told me, this was 10 years ago, and he told me about, I said, how's it going in the country and what's it going on over here? And, one, and in our conversations, one of the things he brought up was this. I'm not going to mention the country, it's a small world. But he said, you know, it's interesting. The country that we're in right now needed help and needed funding. And so the United States came to the table with, and he listed how many millions of dollars our government was going to give that country. But the condition on whether or not they got the money was that they had to change their federal constitution to include LGBTQ values in order to get the money. That's a state religion. When you're promoting it in other countries based on that, I'm just telling you, that's the reality. So what do we do with that when it becomes a civil rights issue? Let me tell you, I've been studying this. I'm fascinated by it. I've just started looking into it a, a little bit more. Back in Nazi Germany, let me go ahead and tell you this in case I forget. If you've got a Bible, turn in it to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to get there in just a minute. Matthew chapter 10. I've been studying Nazi Germany most of my life in different ways, one shape, form, or fashion. But recently I heard about something that was kind of new to me. It was, it was a group of men that got together and formed what was called the Barman Declaration. Now let me tell you about the Barman Declaration. The Barman Declaration was formed by a small synod uh, in, in the little village of, of Barman in Germany. I th I'm, and, and, and I've I've just started reading into this. I've, I've probably, you know, read five or six documents on it. But here was the, the basic idea, and, and I don't want to go into the history lesson this morning, but it's fascinating because what happened was that there was a group of pastors and a group of churches within Nazi Germany that began to see that the Nazi party, I've actually had lunch, I actually had lunch where the Nazi party was formed. It was a little pub uh, in Munich and, and, and it was kind of wild to be in there. Just a couple of dudes got together and decided to form their own political party and there you go. Well, in the Barman Declaration, what had happened was they, they began to see that, 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 that the society and churches, that the church wasn't responding. And so here's a picture of some of the men that got together uh, in that synod and, 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 and did uh, the Barman Declaration. Karl Bar Barth wrote most of it. But if you notice on the far left, in the far left corner, second from the left is a blonde-headed dude. That would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
And, and so Bonhoeffer was a part of that. And, and so they, they, they basically formed five tenets that they, they began to see that the church just wasn't responding. Now, if you, if you fast forward, there's a, there's a book I haven't gotten yet. I intend to read it, and I don't normally bring up books that I haven't read and know what I'm saying yet, but I trust this man. I've got his book on Bonhoeffer, but I, I first heard about the Barman Declaration from Eric Metaxas. If you know who Eric Metaxas is, I've actually heard Eric speak before. He, uh, he's a very great speaker, very great author, and he's very burdened by what's happening in America. And he's got a new book out called Letter to the American Church. Shane Pass just told me he finished it on Audible the other day, and he said, man, you got to get this. I said, actually, I'm waiting on my Audible credits to roll over so I can get it next time. But in this, there was something that happened in the Barman Declaration. So and I put those numbers up there because there were, uh, it, there's a little bit of varying uh, number on how many churches were in Germany at the time. But, but give or take, some say around 16,500, some say maybe, maybe as much as 18,000. But, but according to Metaxas, there were 3,000 churches or pastors that were pro-Nazi, meaning they liked the political movement. But you got to understand before you go, what? Well, hold on a minute. You got to realize the Holocaust hadn't started happening yet. You know, it had just began. Some of that had begun, but some of this stuff had yet to unfold. So, so don't, don't get too worked up yet because they, they saw the atrocities, but it had gone nowhere. The, the, the whole thing about what happened with Nazism is it progressed over time. But there were about roughly, give or take, we're going to use these numbers loosely, there were roughly 3,000 churches in Germany that were, were pro the, the new political takeover. Then there were 3,000 churches that were absolutely against it. And those were part of what, 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 what became to be called the confessional church. And the confessional church was a group of churches that said, hey, this is bad, this is evil, and we, and we have to do something about it. And that's where the Barman Declaration came into play. But the issue that's most fascinating was there were 12,000 churches in the middle that did nothing. And it's those 12,000 churches that I think mirror what's happening in America today. And what they said was, we don't need to get involved in politics, we just need to preach the gospel. Well, so let's look back now. Let's look backward. How'd that turn out? How'd it turn out? It turned out that millions of women and children and mentally handicapped people and all kinds of people, millions were murdered. You see, there's a lot of people that believe the church shouldn't be involved in politics. And I would say to you, friends, well, I guess, have you ever read anything in that book? Because from Genesis to Revelation, God had always called prophets, priests, all kinds of people to be involved on the national landscape. That doesn't mean, I mean, I'm very, I mean, I, I, I couldn't tell you much of what's happening in the news. I just choose, I don't know. I, I, I can't keep up with it and I kind of quit. Man, that's, that's not, I'm not saying that's a good way to do it. I just, I don't know. It's not for me so much. But I'm glad that there are people like Eric McTaxis and others 
that are called to that because the reality is the church, even on the local level, we can't just sit by and watch things unfold because it will happen again. It's the 12,000 in the middle that say nothing. And I'll tell you, even during COVID, forget COVID the disease, one of the things happening in the back channels among pastors was all this talk on social media and all these articles coming out from major publications in, in the American church world saying things like, you're not a doctor, you're not called to be a politician, preach the gospel. Even it was said just the same way, preach the gospel. Well, listen, friends, part of the gospel is that we don't abide deception. There's not, the whole gospel is there to go against deception. Bonhoeffer said himself, I love this quote from Bonhoeffer, he said this, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. I've been reading through Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship. If you guys think I preach strong messages, they put a rope around that guy's neck and they killed him for the stanzas he took for Christ. So today, as we look backward, we are gonna preach the gospel and we are gonna be involved on this and any other issue of deception. So I told you we're gonna talk about what God wants from Christians living in a confused culture. So let's read Matthew 10. Here we go. All right, Matthew chapter 10, G verse one. It's, look, it's 42 verses Settle in. Because I don't know where to stop and I just chose not to. <laughs> Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then he names them. We're just going to bypass that just for the sake of time. He names the actual disciples and then picks it up in verse 5 and Jesus gave them these instructions do not go in the way of the Gentiles verse 5 and do not enter any city of, of the Samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and as you go preach saying the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand heal the sick raise the dead cleanse the lepers cast out demons freely you received freely give do not acquire gold or silver or copper in your money belts or a bag for your money or for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. If it is not, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or out of that city, you shake the dust off of your feet. Verse 15, so truly I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for that land of, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Verse 17. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and they will scourge you. That, is, they will, that, that, that means they will literally beat you. 
with rods in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And when they hand you over, do not worry about what you're to say, for it'll be given to you in that hour what you're to say. Verse 24, it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of the Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end that will be saved. And whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And then Jesus switches gears a little bit in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. If it, it's enough, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like the master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will, that is the devil, how much more will they malign the members of the household? In other words, what he's saying, if they hated me, they're gonna hate you even worse. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, nothing hidden that not be made known. Verse 27, for I, what, he says, what, what I tell you in the darkness, remember this verse, we're going to cover it more in a minute. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those that kill the body, but those who are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then Jesus switches gears again. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? It's just the smallest piece of money. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, any, any, or everyone who confesses me before men... I will confess him before my father who is in heaven. Verse 33, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life, verse 39, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. A lot of, a lot of words there from Jesus. Now I want you to know, it's very clear, if you haven't picked up, this passage doesn't have anything to do with anything sexually oriented. It doesn't. What it does have everything to do with is what it looks like for a follower of Jesus to live in the open. 
to live in the open. I first was working through this topic and I was gonna title it, Why Silence is Complicit. Why is silence complicit? And I, and I figured as I began to look at this passage, I thought, well, what does God ask of a disciple on any and everything in his culture? And that's where I landed on the idea of what God wants from Christians living in a confused culture. And, and based on what I see in this passage, here's the first truth I would give you. God wants his power revealed, never concealed. He wants his power revealed, never concealed, right? And, and so here's why I would say that to you. God has the historical precedent of doing things in the open. And here's what I mean by that. Now, I'm not saying God never does anything in the back channels. God's always at work. But when it comes to discipleship, there is no such thing as a silent witness. You do realize that's an oxymoron, don't you? A silent witness is no witness at all. A silent witness is, is akin to me knowing how to swim, seeing somebody drowning, swimming up next to them and just smiling with compassion. Hoping that they learn how to swim by my example. You hear Christians do that kind of stuff all the time. You know, that I'm, I'm gonna just lead by example. Well, there's all kinds of people leading by example. Good examples, bad examples. But if you're gonna be a disciple of Christ, it has to come out of your mouth. The way of truth has to be spoken into existence to people that don't know it. And so what God is doing right here in this commission is he's sending out for the first time, he's sending them out. See, before they were behind him, Jesus was leading the way. Jesus was kind of the tip of the spear. Now he's saying, no, I'm going to get out of the way and y'all are going to go. And I'm taking the umbrella off. They're going to hit you. They're going to haul you in front of tribunals. Life is going to be awful in many ways. It's time for you to go. But one, you see that he sent them out to confront the culture. You see, the reason that God wants his power revealed and never concealed is because God is a God of power. And therefore, he's never going to be soft on sin. And he's never going to be silent on sin because Jesus wasn't silent on sin. And we're never called to be silent on sin. And I find it interesting in verse 1, if you're looking in Matthew chapter 10, look in verse 1. It said, Jesus summoned the 12 to him and he gave them what? Authority. Now, if you're taking notes, write that down, verse 1. He gave them authority over what? Unclean spirits. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he told him to go. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's debate in the Christian world. People say, well, this whole thing of cast out demons and you know, cleanse lepers and go and do this and go. He only gave that to them. Well, I want to tell you something. If that's true, then none of that Bible is for me. None of it. Because if he only gave it to the apostles, then guess what? I don't have to obey the Great Commission either because he only gave it to those people. Look at the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives authority. He said, all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. That is to me, therefore go. He's conferring authority, right? 
No different than a police officer. A police officer has a badge, which is authority, and he has a gun, which is power. He has power to back up the authority on his chest. And that is conferred to him on behalf of a higher authority of the state or the city. We have been given authority. Now, healing is a gift. It is a gift. The cleansing of lepers, casting out of demons, power. Freely, Jesus said, give, freely you receive. But I'm here to tell you, friends, that you don't see Jesus being you know, careful about his words here. He says in verse 27, look again, I told you to remember that verse. Verse 27, he said, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. Speak it in the light. We are, we are told to be open about God's power because God's power is revealed. It is never concealed. And we're the conduits of that power. And I'll tell you, it's, it's interesting to me that Jesus gave away that authority again at the commission. And one of the things he did in that commission, see, I think as Baptists, we get a, a part of that commission, we do really well with it. He said, go into all the nations. Baptists do that really, really, really well baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptists do that really, really, really well. Teach them to obey some of the commandments that I've given you. No, he doesn't say that. Teach them to obey all the commandments I'm giving you. And those commandments are all throughout Scripture. The first thing he tells them in verse 1 is he says, he gave them authority over unclean spirits. That's the power of deception at work in today's world. God wants his power revealed, never concealed. But here's why. And that's the second truth I got for you this morning. Here's the reason why. Number two, God wants his power accessible and engaged accessible and engaged. See, see, power from God doesn't change anybody until they engage it. But how are they gonna engage it? Paul said it in Romans, how can they believe in whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without a, someone telling them? You see, we are the conduits of the power, all of us. All of us, I don't live where you live, you don't live where I live. I don't work where you work, you don't work where I work. I don't have the friends you have, you don't have the friends I have. We all have our own circles of influence. And that's the way God set it up. We are the conduits of power. But that power means nothing until it's engaged. And by the way, just so you know, in verse eight of Matthew 10, when he says heal the sick, that word means a lot of things. It means sick folk, literally. It means feeble. It means broken. It's a catch-all from what I could tell. People broken. And we are the messengers of that power. And I want to say something to you. And they say, why does this matter? I'll tell you why this matters to this particular issue of living in a culture that is sexually confused and sexually deviant. Friends, listen to me. We have the message of redemption to tell people, you don't have to live this way. And God didn't make you this way. 
regardless of what you're being told. What we see in the scriptures in a sexually confused world is a simple reality that confusion is not a core value with God. It's not a core value. Chaos is not a core value in the kingdom. It's just not. Confusion is not in the heart of God. He made it very clear. But if, unless we go, then they don't hear about a, rede a redeemer. And what I want you to know is that sin in and of itself, why did Jesus send them out? Because sin puts a chokehold on everything it touches. Sin never seeks to stay small. Sin always seeks to scale. It always seeks to scale. It will always grow and it'll infect. That's why a pure heart matters so much. That's why purity matters so much in the house of God. It's why our standards matter so much in, with the heavenly realms because sin, once it infiltrates, the agenda of the devil is first to confuse. He did it in the garden, go back and read. His agenda is first to confuse, but I'll tell you what the confusion is headed for, a takeover. That's the outright end of the game. He's there to win. And I don't know if you've looked around American society in the last 15 years, but if you don't think the sexual agendas that are going on in this country, if you don't think that's evangelism, you're asleep at the wheel. It's just evangelism of a different kind. And they are winning. They are winning. And I'm here to tell you, we have the story of a redeemer. We have the story of a redeemer who can set the adulterer free. A redeemer who can set the captive free who's broken in pornography. We have the message of a redeemer that can unshackle somebody who is sexually confused with gender fluidity. We, we, we have the power to tell people about this God who can tell moms and dads that it is an abomination to a holy God for you to teach your children that they can be anything they wanna be and their, their anatomy means nothing. That is deception. And I'm telling you, I have so much grace with people who are deceived, but I have no grace with deceivers. I have no grace with deception. And I think that's why Jesus sent them out. He sent them out to say, tell them what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Enough is enough. I'm tired of watching people be broken. I want you to know something, Krenz, and I'm going to keep telling you this every Sunday. I'm going to tell it to you all the time because you're going to forget it. I'm going to keep telling you, and I'm going to keep telling you, and I'm going to keep telling you, and I'm going to keep telling you. You're being told all the time in modern culture that it is unloving to take these kind of stands, and I'm here to tell you there is nothing loving at all about leaving people deceived. There's nothing loving about that. There's no time in the canon from Genesis to Revelation that God will ever call you to tolerate anything that it took the death of his son to redeem. He will not, he will not. It is not loving to tolerate sin of any kind, of any kind. You don't need to tolerate sin in my life. 
And I don't need to tolerate sin in yours. You know why? Because sin seeks dominion. Sin seeks dominion. And that is why Jesus sent them out. He sent them out so they could have access to the very power of Christ in us, the hope of glory. But there is a promise, and it's a neat one. God promises his cover all along the way. He promises cover. Look in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but they're unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. So he's telling them, in effect, choose this day who you're going to serve. That's what he's saying. But then he goes into words of comfort. Because I'm going to tell you, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, if I'm standing there and I'm Peter or I'm Bartholomew or I'm Andrew and I hear Jesus who's turned water into wine and walked on water and done all these things, all of a sudden telling me, hey, by the way, I'm going to send you all out over the next few weeks. Some of y'all probably ain't going to come back. I'm going to all of a sudden think twice about this, high, this whole new career path of mine. All right? But what does he tell them? Look what he says in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your heavenly father. Very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than sparrows. He's telling them, I'm going to cover you. And what he's telling them is to be heavenly minded. Be heavenly minded. I say it to you this way all the time. You've heard me say it many times. But for those of you that have never heard it, I'm going to say it for those of you that haven't heard it. My paraphrase on that is his way of saying, just remember when you die, you're not going to stand in front of your CEO or your principal or the Supreme Court or your Facebook friends or your bestie or your mom or your dad, you're not gonna stand in front of anybody but holy God, fear that. And on that day, I wanna be on the right side of this thing. I wanna be on the right side. It is my job to be loving and it is my job to be honest on everything and it is yours too. You see, what I see, when I look at this, Jesus is being very clear about the cost of discipleship. And I want to say something to you, friends. I fear that Eric Metaxas is right, that the 12,000 in the middle in America looks more like, I haven't counted up how many churches are in America. They come and go. Churches are closing at an alarming rate, have been for 30-something years. I don't know the number of churches in America, but it's way more than 12,000 in the middle. It's way more than 12,000 in the middle. And what Jesus is telling us is that the road to discipleship is hard. It is hard. And we're going to have to choose this day who we're going to serve because it's his church. It's his church. And so what's happening right now with the 12,000 in the middle, metaphorically, what's happening with the 12,000 in the middle is this. Any church that isn't receiving any kind of resistance, we may not be doing it right at all. If you're living your life for Christ and you're getting no resistance whatsoever, I'm going to tell you, 
Look into the eyes of Bonhoeffer. Look into the eyes of martyrs across human history. Look into the eyes of Paul. Look into the eyes of Peter. Discipleship comes with a temporary price tag. Temporary. And Jesus is reminding us that this world is not your home. We are not sent here, you guys. We are not sent here to come to church, sit on really great padded chairs with awesome HVAC that works most of the time. And then scuttle off to our small groups, send our students to Fuge Camp and call it a day. That is not the will of God for your life. It is part of the Sunday experience, but it is not the will of God for your life. The will of God for your life is that you live as an open disciple for everybody to see on every level. So when when Jesus talks about denying him, let me tell you what he means. Let me tell you what he means. That word man, in fact, let's just go back and look at it. Stay with me for just a few more seconds. When Jesus said, whoever, verse 33, verse 32, everyone who confesses me before men, I'll confess him before my father. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him to my father. Friends, that's a very clear statement. And that word man is a word anthropos, and it can mean a lot or one. It means humans. It just means humans. So it means just as much to God that Jason Cruz testify to the reality of the Lord Jesus in a trial in front of all of Williamson County or all of Tennessee or all the Supreme Court. It means just as much to God that I confess his name there. And it equally means just as much to God standing in front of the eyes of my employer behind closed doors, one-on-one. It's the same word. It means that Jesus is gonna hold me accountable for carrying my cross in the private conversations, when my job is on the line, and in maybe the global conversations where my reputation is on the line. It's all the same. That we do not deny him. You know why? Because he didn't deny us. He went to the cross in the open and he's going to hold us accountable to how we steward the gospel. He is, and he's very clear about it, but he makes us a promise. And that promise is this, that if you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. You know, it means a lot to us that you would come here today and be a part of who we are. It really does matter to us more than you might realize. Sometimes I think we underestimate the power we have to influence people. You know, if you would look around your world, you'd be amazed at how many people would receive what you have to say to them. You could be a digital missionary. You don't have to post everything on Facebook or we're not asking you to go on your favorite social platform, but I would challenge you to look around your world 
I guarantee you might have a friend, even in a different state or another part of the world, something was said today, whether a sermon, a prayer, a song, something was said that could mean a lot to them. Man, send it to them. You'd be amazed at how much of a difference that could make.